Hi, this is Liz Tinkham, and welcome to Third Act, a podcast about people embracing the third act of their lives with a new sense of purpose and direction. The third act begins when your script ends, but your show's just not finished. Hi, and welcome to Third Act. Today, I talk with Nancy Evans, who likes to think of herself as a serial liver. Early in Nancy's career, she wrote a prescient article called Surviving My 20s, where she said that she wanted to be, among many other things, a magazine person, a teacher, and a farmer. Little did she know that she would get to live all these experiences, along with so many more. Nancy went on to become a storied publisher and founder of iVillage, the internet's first online destination for women. She's also an author, entrepreneur, mother, consultant, and yes, a farmer. Today, in the next adventure of Nancy's life, she's the host of the Confab podcast, where women tell their stories about how they defied the odds to create their own businesses and compose their lives. More importantly, through her work with the Women's Wisdom Project, she's collecting the important stories of women, including her own, who have paved the way for so many of us to succeed. So Nancy, welcome to the Third Act Podcast. What a pleasure to have a fellow podcaster, although I must say I'm a little intimidated. Oh, please don't be. I'm fun. (laughs) I'm good. Yeah, I know you are. So you're an (laughs) award-winning interviewer. Mm -hmm. So, and I'm just a former management consultant who likes to interview people. So please provide constructive criticism throughout the interview, if you would. I'll be your sister. I'll support you. Thank you. So let's get, let's get going. Um, You have a terrific career. And I want to kind of take us, take our audience through it a bit. So your career is in some ways historic because you've worked through and survived the change from traditional media publishing, books and magazines, to launching the first major internet site for women in iVillage, doing digital media consultant and now podcasting. So if I roll back though, to what we call, or I call on this show, the first act, which is Wesleyan, what do you think you would be doing once you graduated? Well, yeah, I, of course, was at, um, you know, the fork in the road, and I had two mentors, fabulous mentors, women mentors at Wesleyan, and one was the first woman chairman of the English department. They'd never had a woman chairman, and the other was uh, the head of women's studies. In fact, she had created women's studies at Cornell and then was um, recruited to come to Wesleyan to create women's studies. So I had these two women advising me what they thought I should do. And the head of the English department thought I should go become an academic and show that more women could rule the world in academia. And the other took me down to meet Gloria Steinem in New York and said, what you should do is be the next Gloria Steinem and like change media and, you know, fight for women's rights. So because I was scared and because I needed to, um, be supported. I um, I went to graduate school um, oh, at Columbia okay. in uh, English literature to get my doctorate to take that route because I thought, you know, I'll be a professor and in the summers I can write, which I was already doing by then. So writing was a big part of my life. So I was, I was torn. I was torn in which direction to go. You know, it's funny because a number of people that I've interviewed started off going into academia went on to get their doctorate and then switched. So it sounds like you might've switched because how'd you get into publishing? Yeah, well, then I'm at Columbia and I uh, was being photographed by this famous photographer for a a book that Columbia was doing. And he (laughs) looked from behind his camera 
and just stared at me and said, what do you really want to do? And I said, oh, well, what I really want to do is go into publishing and work at a magazine. And he went back behind the camera and then he came out again and he goes, well, why aren't you doing that? And I said, well, who would hire me? And he goes, kid, just <laughs> go try, go try it. And really all it took, I mean, Gloria Steinem calls it the power of one, that one person can come into your life and you're ready to hear the message. And I was, and I went home that night to my little hovel of a room, Columbia, and uh, started writing letters to every magazine on the planet and created a resume and then proceeded to go on interviews. So, uh, and you mentioned you become the president and publisher of Double Day. So I think the whole publishing thing worked out pretty well for you. <laughs> so this is like late 80s, early 90s. What, you know, what was it like for women in publishing at that time? There were, there have always been women in publishing. What there weren't necessarily were women at the head running the companies. The bigger tableau, I think, is that when I had come from Book of the Month Club, where I'd been the editor-in-chief of Book of the Month Club, which was a really big business at that time, owned by Time Inc. And I also had been doing a television show underwritten by Time Inc. on PBS. So I was beginning to get a kind of profile out there in the media world. So by the time it was announced, I was going over to um, be president and publisher of Doubleday. The Wall Street Journal (laughs) wrote up the, the announcement of my going there and did nothing but talk about my looks how young I was, the way I looked. I need to say this because that, I I sometimes, I hope it's changing. It still isn't as much as it should, but they never would have talked about a man going to run a company and and talked about his paunch or, you know, his balding hair. (laughs) Um, But all they did was talk, all they did was talk about my looks. And so that was pretty tough. And I just tried to, you know, you got to just ignore it and, and barrel on. And that's what I did. I mean, I took this behemoth that was kind of falling on hard times and I had to lay off a lot of people, which is always hard. And then I began um, turning it around. And the good news was I'd already had corporate experience at Time Inc. So, which does give you skill sets that you really do need um, to run a company, I think. Yeah, I did go back and some of the research. I mean, it was not a particularly, I don't know if favorable is the right word, but I mean, the, the was it the CEO who took some heat for hiring you from Book of the Month Club over to Doubleday? Yeah, I mean, any guy... <laughs> Any guy who hired me took heat. And then later, when I succeeded at something, every guy who ever hired me said, I found her in the gutter. I made, I made her what she is today. I mean, they all took credit for it. Uh, yeah, they all, they all took heat for it. Oh, I've had that happen to me too. Like, oh, I'm the founder. Look how great she's done. Yeah, I was sort of doing well before that too. All right, so you yeah. had a very famous per- person working for you at Jackie Onassis, when you were at Doubleday. And last year, you published this great piece in uh, Vanity Fair's airmail loose letter. And we'll, uh, we'll reference that in the show notes about working with her. And my favorite part of that whole story was about giving her a raise. So people can go and look at that piece. But why don't you just tell us about what was it like to try and give Jackie? <laughs> I'm going to laugh thinking Absolutely. about it. It's really early this morning, in the morning to laugh this hard, um, giving her a raise. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, first, let me say that um, that essay that was in Greg and Carter's newsletter, it came from a book called One Last Lunch, where a lot 
of people were asked to write about if they could imagine one last meal with a, a person, a friend of theirs who happened to be famous. So I was one of many in that book. But Jackie trying to get her to take a race. Okay, so she had had a bunch of bestsellers. I mean, huge bestsellers. Um, Michael Jackson's Moonwalk, before all of his issues came out, a book called The Power of Myth by Joseph Campbell and Bill Moyers. I mean, she was like ruling the bestseller list. And I said, Jackie, you are bringing in so much money to this company. You need to have more money going to you. And she said, oh, you know, I don't really need it. And I said, Jackie, it is so not about whether you need the money. You deserve the money. And it's not good for women for you to say that. So it's going to be in your next paycheck. So congratulations. End of story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't try and give it back or anything, did she? No, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, again, I will reference all of this in the show notes, but that's a terrific article. Uh, encourage people to go and read it. So after that, though, you go on to uh, found Family Life magazine and... I know you you had a young child at the time. This is in the 90s. I did too. I remember when Family Life came online and I thought, oh my gosh, there's actually a magazine that has something other than, like you said, white, everybody's at home, sort of the 50s model of being in a family, right? And I was working, you were working. I mean, what gave you the confidence? I mean, I understand the niche was open, but what gave you the confidence to found the magazine at that time? You know, confidence. But it really is the key thing for, I think, anyone starting a business, but particularly for women. Um, so what gave me the confidence was I, I marshal tons of research. I mean, I am like the ultimate. I still work with paper, so I'm constantly clipping, you know, Fortune magazine, New York Times. And there was so much in the business press pointing to the fact that there was this hungry parenting market. And of course, parents themselves had changed so dramatically. I could just see that with my own eyes, taking my daughter to school, that there were as many fathers taking their daughters to school as there were mothers, and that we were different colors. Um, Our kids were playing outside now. They weren't always in the house. And it just seemed to me so obvious that there needed to be another magazine beside the reigning king at the time, which was called Parents. And so I started writing it up in notes. You know, like I just would write down little riffs about what I imagine this magazine could be. And then I got, you know, where I got confidence. I read a book um, called Growing a Small Business by Paul Hawken, who started Smith & Hawken. And he said, you know, what stopped me was the business plan part. And I said, you know, like, how do I know what the numbers are going to be and what the revenue, ad revenue will be? And he said, forget the words business plan and just write up your project as if you're writing a letter to a friend. And then that let the gates open so I could write it. And I wrote it and then went around uh, to various media companies uh, to pitch it. And I'll tell you one other thing, back to confidence. Like when I wasn't, when I start falling apart and thinking, oh, you know, who's going to do this with me? Like, why would they take it on? I'd go for walks. I am like really big on taking walks to get myself revved up again. So the moral of that story is don't just rely on your Excel spreadsheet. Oh, really don't. Because almost anybody that you go um, when you are starting a business, and if you are going out, let's say, to raise money, invariably they'll say, just throw out these numbers. Because whatever numbers you're coming up with are that are a best guesswork. And what is more of interest to almost anyone out there is the people pitching the idea. 
I mean, it's you and your experience and your passion for the project that usually gets the yes. When did you start to recognize that the internet was going to change the world of publishing? At Family Life. So I'm in my offices uh, in Manhattan. And there came a time when really almost every day, someone from the West Coast, including Paul Allen, Bill Gates, that whole crew was coming to New York to meet with what they called then content providers. And content providers were all the mass magazines at the time. So these guys would come into my office and they would set up a little computer and then they would show me this really bad prototype of what the internet was going to look like. And usually, you know, it, it broke down and, you know, it didn't work. But they were saying to me, the next big thing is the internet. So can we license your content to go on this thing called the web? And I said, yeah, well, why would anyone go to the web when they can get this content within this beautiful magazine? And also, where's the money? What's the, what's the business model here? Which was not answered at that time. So I learned a lot from all of these meetings of these guys, and they were all guys coming into my office and, and talking to me about what they thought the front, next frontier was. That's how I learned. Yeah. And... And so you go on and get involved in iVillage. What was iVillage? So Family Life uh, was being used by, do you remember QVC, which was like- Yeah, of course. Shopping shopping, network. network, The whole shopping network. So Barry Diller, who owned it at the time, had just started something called QVC2, which was home shopping for people who wouldn't be called dead, home shopping. And a woman named- Exactly. And a woman named Candace Carpenter was running that. And someone showed me one day that she was using (laughs) all the art, the visuals from my magazine as the wraparound on her parenting content. So I thought, well, compliment, but also not not good that you're taking my stuff. So <laughs> we called violation too. Yeah, no copyright <laughs> violation. So we called a meeting. We being Jan Wenner um, of Rolling Stone fame, who was my partner on Family Life, and Barry Diller and Candace came over, and the four of us had a meeting to kind of come to Jesus and um, cease and desist. Well, during that meeting, I just thought, okay, Candace stole from me, but she's also really smart. And I wrote her a note after that meeting and just said, I think we should become friends. And I did that in part because rarely was I in a room, a corporate room with another woman. It was very rare in my life that there were women in the room. And so we became friends and she started doing consulting work for America Online, AOL, you know, back in dial-up days. And she sent me a disc, the AOL disc, those ubiquitous discs. Yeah, they used to send them in the mail, right? Exactly. So I put this thing in my computer and I'm going, wow, this is really stupid. I mean, I I didn't, I was not impressed. And she said, well, exactly. There's the opportunity. You know, we can, we can make it better. So that was, that was the beginning. I remember using iVillage because, and it seemed early for what it was. So maybe explain for people who didn't use it, what it, what the intent was and what it was and. Yeah. Well, the year was um, 1995. And in 1995, less than 11% of the people online were women. 
AOL, which is hard to imagine right the, now. So hard to yeah, imagine. So you, really, you really need to kind of lay down that number to understand what, what it was like. And AOL, which was then the premier um, portal, they were seeing from their, the beginning of statistics for them that the primary users that they um, were people with high needs, which included gays who were looking for community, army people, you know, people, military, yeah, yeah. who were off in different places and needed friends and family. And the third was parents, especially new parents who were looking for advice and information. So because I had the Family Life magazine, AOL asked if we could create a parenting site and we said, that's interesting, but really we'd like to create something bigger. So Steve Case, who was there then, and Ted Leonsis proceeded to give us $2 million to begin this larger thing that included parenting, but also would include other interests for uh, women. And then with that money, yeah, we went out and raised uh, more money than any other women ever had. So I read a really interesting quote when I was doing some research on you from the New Yorker, and I'm going to read it here about the iVillage and because it went on to IPO. So here's the quote. It's good fortune. This is referring to your IPO the, or the iVillage IPO. However, attracted an unusual amount of attention and hostility because Carpenter and Evans were neither webheads nor computer geeks, but two women in their 40s with controversial reputations rooted in the realm of books, magazines, and television. To their old media peers, their sudden windfall seemed to show that anyone with a few ideas and a lot of nerve could make a killing in cyberspace. So I was reading that a couple of days ago, and it was so offensive to me. And there was a New Yorker, October 99. And, you know, I don't think that would have ever been said either then or now about two young guys coming out of Stanford with a PowerPoint deck. So as you look back on it, so what, what legacy do you think you and your business partner, Candace Carpenter, left for women entrepreneurs? To go where no one has tread. You have to understand that that statistic I gave you earlier, that only 11% of the people online were women in 1995, meant that the web was largely dark, rudderless, weird, not anywhere what I would call normal people would want to go. So the fact that we didn't know anything about the internet or that we weren't computer geeks was actually our credentials to go in there and try to consumerize it and make it habitable. I mean, we said our mission was to humanize cyberspace. So that is what we did. And they were all quite right. We knew nothing about Tech. I mean, one day Candace and I were sitting on this white thing talking and like a tech guy came running over and said, you know, you're sitting on the server. Like we were about to blow up our whole company, but like we didn't know it was the server. But what we did know was what women wanted. And we quickly, we were the ones who created what is now called community. We had millions of women um, breaking off into support groups from you know, new new parents, parents of twins, to women who wanted to lose 20 pounds, 30 pounds, women who wanted to go into politics. You know, it was where the women's march, the first women's march in Washington that had to do with gun control. Most of it was organized on iVillage because of course we had this, you know, national network. And the women's, you know, were in there saying, you know, I'll meet you at the corner of, you know, Vine and, you know, 
Twig Road and we'll go to Washington. I mean, it became this hub, this huge hub of incredible solution sharing among women. And it included, we interviewed almost every candidate for national office. And we always brought questions from the women of the country. I mean, literally had hundreds of questions, sometimes thousands of questions that were submitted to us from women all over. And we brought those questions um, to the big guys and a few women. Um, and childcare, for instance, which in our polls always rose to the top of things that women cared about. And when I brought that up to um, some of the, even John McCain, who's one of the good guys, and I said, you know, childcare is really important to women. In fact, it's the number one thing that's important to women. And he just said, really? You know, gosh, I didn't know that. So it was a real turning point time. And I, I think it took non-tech people to change what the internet could be. Uh, totally. And I mean, it was quite successful because you guys IPO'd. Yeah, the IP when we IPO, we were the sixth largest IPO in the frigging history of the world. I mean, it was huge. It's so cool. Yeah. And when and we also said from the beginning that we were a media company, which wasn't the word on the street then among the computer geeks who were creating stuff. We said we were creating a media company. It wasn't an internet thing, it was a media company. So that's an important distinction. Later, NBC bought the company, which was one of our initial investors, and they took it on. Did you end up staying on with when NBC bought iVillage? No, and too bad, because um, one of the real tricks of learning the web program, I mean, how you, how you do editorial and how you do community on the web, is that you listen to the consumer you're working from the down, down up, listening to women and then bringing back to them what they say they want. And NBC Universal came in and did it the old top-down media way and brought in, you know, their talent to create shows and to um, to be the host of everything. And they completely forgot that the engine that drove our village and that to this day drives social media are the people are the women. And they really forgot to listen to the women and they really, um, they lost their way. Yeah. And it kind of, kind of faded away, kind of got folded into the broader NBC and then, yeah. But it's important to know that um, in the wrong hands, not knowing how to really take advantage of what the web can do. I mean, that two-way conversation, which we also brought to, um, to advertising, which is another thing that, um, was one of our milestones was that there hadn't been any blue chip companies advertising on the web because it was too scary for them to bring their treasured brands on there. And we brought the first blue chip companies on to advertise, but we said, you're not going to just advertise one way like you do on TV and magazines. This is going to be a two-way conversation. You've got to bring something to the party because these are that's why we called it our village so you need to bring something you know in your little store that you're going to set up here so every one of our companies we brought in did something um other than just advertising their wares that was that's significant so after that if i've got it right you found your own consulting company evans media 
you know, people like with that New Yorker quote about how easy it is, you know, to create an internet company and then cash out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's not. I, <laughs> That's I the had, whole thing was all I, offensive. I, I need to say, I had worked so hard. I mean, 24, you know, that old 24 um, seven. Yeah. I mean, really, I would count the here are the number of hours in a day and try to figure out, okay, can I sleep three hours, you know, and still do everything we've got oh, to do. Um, so when I came out of that, I was so tired uh, that the first thing I did was um, I just wanted to like become a farmer, a simple farmer. And we bought a house in Connecticut <laughs> and that is what I did. I started moving okay. boulders. And playing tr- I mean, I just had a wonderful time being like a farmer, a country woman. So that is really what I did. But as I was doing that, so many of the iVillage gang have gone on to start companies. And so they were still in my life. And so I was helping them, you know, do their decks, their business proposals, um, introducing them to people, you know, about raising money. And that, so that was my, like, breathing air. I was doing that all the time. And it really was my wonderful daughter who said, Mommy, you really ought to name this, you know, Evans Meteor, you know, start, you know, create official thing because you're doing this all the time for everybody. So that's Did how you, it started. So, so you're farming and you're, and you're yeah. consulting. So, um, yeah. did your, one of the things I like to ask people is how their sense of identity changed throughout their sort of career. And I mean, you had a very, you still do, I mean, but very, very big, uh, uh, public personality and and lots being written yeah. about you with Thy Village yeah. as you uh, kind of step back and retreated into farming. And so <laughs> how did your sense of identity change? Okay. Well, one day I looked at a calendar from the old days and then my calendar in the current days. And it was like, I had meetings every 15 minutes in the old days. And then this calendar said, um, you know, deadhead, you know, flowers, you know, make stone wall. I mean, it was like, and I just, I looked at it and I said, wow, Nancy. I like, yeah, this is a different, and then I had on a Cartier watch, my one Cartier watch that I got for, I gave to myself on my 50th birthday, which I then proceeded to crunch under a boulder because I'd forgotten to take it off. You know, so I just thought, yeah, you're, you've got a different life now. And then I just smiled at it because I remembered an article I wrote it's called Surviving My 20s that I wrote for a magazine when I was in my 20s. And in it, I was like in angst about, I want to be, I want to be a magazine person. I want to do this. I want to be a teacher. I want to be a farmer one day. I had all these things I wanted to do. And I thought, I'm doing one of them now. You know, I'm, I'm freaking farming. So that was another thing. I really thought there's so many things to do in a life. And I used to get boxed in thinking, well, I, I, if I don't do that now, I'll never get to do it. But if God willing, you get a long life, you can do so many things, you know, one at a time over that lifespan. So that's really been the thing that's guided me. So my sense is now, as you did your consulting and farming, and, and now you're doing, or my sense is you're giving your wisdom back to women entrepreneurs through the Women's Media Lab, the Women's Wisdom Project, and the Confab podcast. So what motivated you to start these initiatives? I'll tell you, it, it used to just get me 
ticked off when I would go to those, you know, those women's lunches they have, especially in New York, but they have them in cities all over the country where women are feted for being, you know, woman of the year. And um, there was one particular event every year that, you know, included big, bold face names. Like Martha was there. Oprah was there. That whole group. And they would get up in front of this room in a big hotel and tell wonderful stories about their lives, about failures, about trials and tribulations, also the good stuff, but they were personal, they were funny, they were inspiring. And I kept thinking, if I could just take these and get this, get this stuff out to all the women, it shouldn't just be the women in this room hearing it. And that really was my, um, that was my impetus, that I wanted more women to hear stories of how women created their lives, how they started their business, how they move something down the field that was seemed impossible at the time. How did you come up then with this Confab podcast? Yeah, well, my daughter. Okay, my daughter, who has inspired the magazine I started, and then when we were doing iVillage, which we were doing at one of our houses when we first started. So people were coming in into the house every day. And Sam was a little kid. And she would stand at the front door giving out legal pads to everyone who came in. So she, <laughs> Your so early assistant. Sat, yeah. So she sat in on a lot of meetings. And so the kid grew up just, I mean, she just had it in her blood that she was going to be starting things of her own. So she is the one who said we really should do a podcast. She is the one who came up with the name, The Confab, which when I heard it, it means, you know, an intimate conversation, you know, where, where you're, you're telling the truth. It just struck me as completely the right thing. And also our partner is another iVillage alum, uh, Valerie Wasserman. Mm-hmm. Our friend, our mutual friend who introduced us, right? Yes. Because I don't know that I would have, no, I can tell you for sure. I wouldn't have done it if they hadn't encouraged me. I wouldn't have done it. What do you want to do with the Women's Wisdom Project? To collect, to collect all the wisdom from women. Because there is this um, pretty famous thing at uh, Columbia called the Oral History Project, which has been going on for decades, where they're collecting stories from people who had some impact on, you know, history. And I thought that's what I want to do with uh, women, because every time one of us tells our story, women out there go, God, you were scared too? You didn't think you knew (laughs) what you were doing? Uh, they go, well, gosh, if she accomplished all that and she felt that way, well, maybe I can do it too. So I really feel that storytelling is the engine to get more women to think, yeah, I can go out and do that too. You know, there's that famous statistic that only what, two, 3% of venture capital money goes to women. And wouldn't you love to have filmed all the interactions you and Candace had in raising money and then clip it all back as a, you know, something to give to young women now to say, if you think you have it bad, look what we went through <laughs> and you can do it, right? Absolutely. And that's, that I'm going to start writing down is because I do remember so many of those meetings, which were almost to a person, men, white men around those long um, conference tables. And just looking at us like clueless going, what? You know, you want to create something on the internet for women? You know, like women don't even use computers. It was, you know, like they just wanted to throw us out of the room. And I Uh kept saying when they would go, they would go, like my wife would never use it. And I would just go, exactly. 
because there is frigging nothing there for your wife or your daughter or your sister. There is nothing there. And that is what we're going to do. We're going to create the stuff that will make women use it like the next best appliance since the refrigerator. I used to say when I was working, same time frame, right? In the 90s, early 2000s, like I go, especially in my management team, like I was on a global management team. And every time I'd open my mouth, especially since I had guys from all over the world and I'd be talking and I could just see in their faces, like them trying to put me in context with the women they knew in their lives, right? Their mothers, their wives, their sisters. And for the most part, none of them worked. And, and you'd get this like perplexed look. I mean, they accepted me, but I think they were like, where did you come from? Liz, that is such a great description. That glaze, that glaze that came over because they couldn't figure out who you are. Yeah. Who you were and they couldn't put it in context of other women that they knew. And so, and it took me a while to figure that out. They were always really nice to me, very polite and they were in some ways amazed, like, and I had kids and they'd look at me and they'd say, what's going on? Like, how did, and, and after a while I would get them, so many of them would come and share their stories about their wives and how proud they were of whatever their wives were doing or, or, you know, blah, 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 blah. But it took, it took some time to kind of, for me to realize that I was such an anomaly and that sometimes it took me, I had to explain to two or three times to them. And it wasn't because I was battered, but it's just, they just have no context for it. That's right. So you really had to think about how can I move this room, right? What can I do? And I, one of the things I started doing was I became really funny. That glazed look that they would have, if I just finally, you know, leaned at the table or the room and just said something that would get their attention and then they would go, they would start laughing. I would go, okay, so here's the deal, guys. You know, once I broke through that, that look, they all, they all, the other thing is I changed my clothes. The way I wore clothes is I tried to wear clothes that looked like probably their wife could have been wearing it, you know, to make myself more familiar to them you know, not wear some kind of power suit, which is what women were wearing at the time. Right. The big shoulder pads and all of that. <laughs> yeah, right. Isn't that funny to right. think about? Right. Isn't that funny? Oh, I bet your daughter doesn't do that. I bet your daughter wears whatever she wants to work. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah. let me just ask a question about your daughter and working with your daughter. Yeah. So I see you know, my kids, one day we had this conversation in the car about all working together and I was, oh my God, we'd kill each other. So how... <laughs> Or one, all three of them, or one of them. How is that? And what uh, what are you guys doing together? I just feel so lucky. She is just a match for me. She, um, when she was in law school, um, she started a, a magazine for the the students and the faculty online, and it was it looked just like something that I would have started, you know when I was younger. I mean, she just is a little, no, she's now a bigger me. She has got great consumer chops, great design, great sense of uh, wordsmithing. And she's also my best um, deadline keeper. I mean, I don't do anything until I know it's due. Bad, bad, bad. <laughs> but I, I haven't changed that habit of mine. And she'll just send me, you know, notes like, mommy, you have to have it in by five or, you know, some like the intro you've got to write for today. Well, I, I never write my interest until after I've done the interview. And if she didn't tell me to do it, I don't know that I would do it. And then she edits me and I edit back, you know, we edit together. 
Oh, that's great. And then in between doing all that, she's about to get, you know, married. So in between that, she's sending me, um, you know, clothes from fashion sites. So the rest of it is (laughs) talking about clothes and then we go back and then we go back to work. So it's kind of pretty great that way. So what advice do you have for women who are in their third act who, to about launching a new business? That's your Women's Wisdom Project, the Confab. You know, what keeps you going to do all this? Let me just say two things. One is the name of your show is Third Act, which is yes. wonderful. On the other hand, I have never used the term third act because to me, that means third act and then you're dead. So yeah, no, is- you're like in your 10th act. So I... <laughs> So that's why I'm, I've Which always used the term, <laughs> I've used the term serial, serial living because, I mean, I've got as many things to do as I've got years left. So that's kind of my description of what, what is going on. And here's another, my number two thing is that the older co- cohort now is really driving a lot of the new entrepreneurship. I mean, even the New York Times business section had an article talking about the really upswing, not just uptick, but upswing in older people starting businesses. Um, and 25% of new entrepreneurs stat is are 55 to 64. And even when it gets to 80 and above, they're, they're starting businesses. So one thing is people are just, you know, take 20 years off. If you're 70, you're really 50. You know, it's our ages are not as they used to be. So we're, we're much younger, it's easier to start business, businesses now in part because, in large part because of the internet and how we can get things up and running and beta tested and the rest of it. So I think that's exciting. I'll just keep doing. And I think, you know, what you just said about going back into the all of those VC rooms when we were trying to raise money, I think one of my projects is to get my own oral history down, to write about all those times. And, uh, you know, I went down and gave a talk when Sam was in college um, to the women at Wharton Business School, and they really soak up, you know, hearing from the women like us, like what we had to go through. And one of the things that they're most curious about and, and want to change is wanting to have a life while they do whatever they do in business. So they want to get more than three hours of sleep? Yeah, they do. They do. Yeah. Yeah. I, I I admire them. I see the same thing with my kids as well. Like we're not going to work till 11 o'clock every night like you did, mom. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I spent so. a lot of time in my closet, you know, my husband would be asleep <laughs> and I'd be in the closet, you know, with my <laughs> laptop. But I'm going, right? I was thinking, we, I, know. I, was, I was on a long drive yesterday. I was thinking, I was watching my husband on a conference call, then me on a conference call. Oh, conference call. Just, you know, <laughs> right in the car and on Zoom now because you can drive and be on video. And I thought, oh boy, you know, this just keeps going. So I love the serial living. So you, okay, so let's just go with uh, publisher, uh, book author, interviewer, farmer. Uh, clearly, you're not done yet. What else is still on that list? Book. Book, yes. Well, you should write a book. Books, you've already written one, another book because you've written some books. Yeah, I've, I've, written, a, I've written a couple of books, but yes, I, it's time for me to, way over time for me to write a book. Yeah. And bundle all this stuff. Are you going to write a book from the Women's Wisdom Project? I think you should. Yeah, thank you, Liz. Yes, yeah, good idea. 
Yes. Well, you're, you're, yes. I, you're, the Confab podcast, so if people, people should go out and listen to it, the stories are amazing. The first one on Madam C.J. Walker was made into a movie. Uh, but a lot of those stories, I was telling Val, it, I think it is, you have in some ways like a TV show because it's almost like every podcast is an episode of a woman doing something great. But there's so many fascinating stories that you tell. My daughter goes, it's what you call it, craft. Is that craft businesses that take a lot of, a lot of time to make? Uh, that we're, Each of our episodes takes us so long because we're we both in the advanced prep work and then putting them together. So, yeah, I hope they do um, stand some test of time. And our other mission is to bring uh, the stories of women who are, in some cases, long gone who we should know about. And when we did the Madam Walker episode, and my daughter is the one who discovered Madam Walker through her great-granddaughter's book, that story, I mean, most of my friends had never heard of Madam Walker. And she is just a frigging rock star, rock star. Um, and we've got a, and we have, you know, so we have an episode coming up about um, the woman who created Pepperidge Farm, who happened, her family happened to be neighbors of ours when I was growing up. And you know, and she was a mom in Connecticut in the, you know, in the time when women did not start, women didn't even work, let alone start a business. And that's a great story to tell. So Nancy, thank you so much for joining us on my third act of my, although I'm also a bit of a serial liver. In in addition (laughs) to listening to the Confab podcast, where else can we find you online? Well, do go to the Confab podcast dot com website because the website is uh full of um you know content that comes out of our our episodes and there's a newsletter too there's like a a thing you can sign up for there's a newsletter you can sign up for and i try to take out the very best parts of each episode to have what i call the top takeaways so we're really trying to work it so that um this stuff will give women uh you know real real value and also we're funny I mean, Liz, as we have shown today. I mean, I think having a sense <laughs> I would like, agree. You know, you could not be an entrepreneur without having a sense of humor. Because you know I totally things agree happen. With you. And you it's just always my number throw one piece of advice to people. Yeah. Flexibility and sense of humor. Right? Yeah. Uh-huh. All right. Thank you right. so much, Nancy. Thank you, Liz. Thanks for joining me today to listen to the Third Act Podcast. You can find show notes, guest bios, and more at thirdactpodcast.com. If you enjoyed our show today, please subscribe and write a review on your favorite podcast platform. I'm your host, Liz Tinkham. I'll be back next week with another guest who's found new meaning and fulfillment in the third act of their life.